the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Too. This is going to be great fun because I don't know how to schedule and uh, I just, uh, I'm, I'm not very good at it. We've been delighted to have with us and indeed do have with us in studio our superintendent of public instruction, Tom Horn. We've been talking a lot of theory. We've been talking a lot about fact about education. And David Schweikert, who represents uh, Congressional District 1, is also calling in. David, Tom, you two know each other. David, what do you got on oh, education for David, Tom uh, Horn? Uh, uh, I, I told Seth. Than that, Tom, Tom was my lawyer. <laughs> back in like n- late 80s. So it shows you how, what a small town we live in. <laughs> and not only that, David, but I also played piano at your fundraisers. Oh, God, yes. And most people have no idea. You are a very skilled pianist. I'm not sure how to put this conversation together here uh, as we go forward, but uh, David, we were talking about some of the problems in education that Tom has been rolling up his sleeves on. One of the things that we didn't get to just yet I'm getting a lot of calls. Maybe your office is, Tom, and your office is, David, if you want to talk a little bit about this. I'm getting a lot of calls from parents who are concerned about uh, going after the schools and the students again with a COVID outbreak. Would either of you like to talk about that concern? I'm happy to, yeah. I'll let Tom go first, and David, I'll let you respond if that's okay. Well, the, the med- medical data shows that, that young people don't get COVID unless they already have some other health problem. So closing the schools is crazy. It, it, it's caused much more mental health problems, which can turn into physical problems. When kids are isolated and, and depressed and so on, anxious, and, um, and, then, and then making them wear masks is really crazy because over 50% of communication is visual rather than verbal. So if you can't see somebody's face, it's very hard to judge what they're telling you and how sincere they are. Are they happy? Are they unhappy? So for teachers to talk to their students that are learning to socialize themselves through a mask, I think is a kind of child abuse and, and it should not be required. Congressman Schweikert. Well, in my world, I actually lived it. And I'm sorry for the background noise. I'm actually in the vehicle on the way to school to pick up my seven-and-a-half-year-old from second grade. So, you know, I'm living it right now. And I saw her as a kindergartner where they wanted her to sit and as a kindergartner, go to school sitting behind a Chromebook. My little girl became depressed overnight. And so we basically pulled her out and said, we're going to homeschool her. And we were blessed. And we got her into basis. And she has thrived. So, you know, it, it's more than the theory. Uh, we've seen it. We've lived it. And, and under my administration, you have even more choices now, David. Oh, God, yes. And um, look, we all learn differently. And that's actually something the education bureaucracy, I don't think, has has, has completely embraced. Um, And for so many kids, the access to studies that, like my little girl is great at math. She's a second grader and she's remarkable at math. A couple other things we have trouble on. And the ability to have curriculum that that cares um, has made a lot of difference. 
it is interesting in a society, this is kind of something about dynamism you both can speak to, that is so advanced as ours has become, where you have access to more intelligence than ever available before, the Library of Alexandria perhaps in your palms. Uh, there's more money swimming around than ever before, I think, as a nation. We spend, spend close to $900 billion on education all in, K-12 through across the country. So interesting how resistant education professionals are. But it's also interesting, and I'll let you both speak to this as well, that in such an advanced society, so much money, so much technology, we're also seeing education declines. And I wonder if you both might like to address mm-hmm. yourselves to that. David, I'll let you take it first, and then I'll let Tom Horn do cleanup. Now, first, um, I have to give you a philosophical and just an economic. Um, I don't believe the federal government should be involved in our local schools. And there's this great irony. I will get people who will agree, and then in their very next sentence, they will ask me to send them money (laughs) from the federal government for their local schools. And they don't seem to understand um, when you show up in Congress, and you want money, there are strings attached. And many of those strings end up becoming not things I think that actually improve the lives of our children, the quality of their education, their future path to success. They often fund the bureaucracy. And there's one of the classic problems of don't show up in Washington. Um, We can barely run ourselves, let alone start to stick our nose into our local education system. It's an interesting problem, Tom. I haven't looked at this in a while. You would know. My sense of the federal injection into our education at the local level here is probably about 12 percent of the budget, but it must be about 50 percent of the headache and bureaucracy, I'm guessing. Well, um, I'll give you an example. Um, I remember in my first term, I was approached by the Navajos, and they had a problem because uh, I had inherited a situation where all students were asked four, language, four questions to determine if they should be classified as English language learners. And, and, what, and I thought it should be just one question, which is what's the dominant language of the student. But they asked other questions, including uh, it, does anybody in your household speak another language? So you had Native American kids who spoke only English, but they would say, well, my grandmother speaks Navajo at home, but I speak only English. So because they answered the question that way, they would have to take the test, which is called the Azela test, and they would fail it not because of language. English was their only language, but, but for academic reasons. They put them into English language learners, and they ended up in a class that was being taught in Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, you can imagine how the Navos <laughs> felt about that. Yeah. Uh, so I changed it to one question, what's the dominant language of the student? So the federal government came down on me and said, you're discriminating, you're under under representing English language learners because you only ask questions instead of four. And I said to them, listen, if you want to influence what I do, sue me. Yeah. I know where the courtroom is. I'll, I'll, I'll meet you there. Yeah. And they didn't. Yeah. And I had other cases like that. They criticized me because I wanted teachers of English language learners to speak good English. And they said, you're discriminating against people because of their accents and so on. And I said, no, I'll meet you. You know, sue me. Unfortunately, my successor had a different philosophy. He made deals with them. Uh, it, it helps to have a superintendent of schools who's a trial lawyer because I'm willing to stand up to the federal government. And, David, you've long taught that, uh, you know, you can't be bullied, but it is interesting when you do stand up for these things, the bullies do tend to back down. You've seen that. 
Um, but you have to have the resources yeah. and the ability yeah. to engage in that fight. Yeah. And there becomes often the problem is a lot of particularly smaller school districts aren't ready to, you know, have the, the battle that come from parents or others threatening, saying, well, this is the way they're reading the federal statutes. Um, uh, th- there's just not good data that the federal government creeping into state and local schools um, have, have really made things better. And a good example is, look what we did, the federal government did, to the cost of higher education yeah. by the bubble. Yeah, it was also known as the old Bennett thesis. The more available in student loans, funny enough, higher tuition goes, Tom. Yeah, you've seen that, right? I had four kids in college and graduate school at the same time, so I experienced it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. David, if there's one thing you could do to wave a magic wand to improve education, what would it be? Oh. You can have two waves. Uh, it's not it's it's not my area of expertise. And maybe that's actually the most honest answer. Yeah. I have things that I know work for me, have worked for my kids, uh, or is working for my kids. Um, but it's like so many things in our lives. Because I went to school, therefore, I think I'm an, ed, an expert in teaching. What I have learned is optionality gives us options. And the love of my children, I will struggle, I will search, I will find what is best for my children. Do not take away my option. See, I think that is the answer, Tom. David, thank you. I think that is the answer because, you know, the, te- the parent is the, the, the student's uh, first best and all but indispensable teacher, and they do for love what you could never pay anyone enough to do. I think we've gotten off on the wrong road with the word amateur. It is now pejorative. It shouldn't be. It means someone who does something for the love of it. Amateur, amore, it's the same root. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the answer David has. We have to take a quick commercial break, but we'll be right back. Thank you, David, for calling in on on uh, on a, with a surprise guest. So it was lovely to do this. I appreciate you. And Tom Horn and I will be right back to take your calls as well. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Superintendent of Public Instruction Tom Horn is my guest. Happy to take your call, 602-508-0960. Tom, you were telling me on the break uh, that um, everything is uh, for naught if we can't get our scores up, if we can't raise our achievement levels. You think it's possible we can do so. Uh, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? And what do we need to be doing? Okay, I'll tell you what I'm doing um, uh, because that's my obsession. I have no vices. I have one obsession, and that is that we raise academic outcomes for our kids. And that's why I ran for this office. Um, And I'll start out with a story. There was a professor at a Midwest university who did a federally funded time on task study. And he concluded that the more time students spend learning something, the more of it they learn. And his mother said to him, you needed a federally funded study to tell you that? Yeah. Pretty obvious. Yes. So my heroes are... Science teachers love science, history teachers love history, et cetera, and so on. And they want to teach their subjects bell to bell because they love them. Mm-hmm. But some of them have complained to me that under the previous administration, one of the reasons I ran for this office, they have to they have to play what they call dumb games with the kids because of the ideology of social-emotional learning. Mm-hmm. So the problem we have is that is that in recent years, we've had focus on everything but academics. Mm-hmm critical race theory, social-emotional learning, inappropriate sexual stuff, and so on. 
and 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 we need to get rid of those distractions and we need to focus on our academics bell to bell and that's that is and and one of our slogans is every instructional minute is precious and so that is my solution that's what i'm working hard for and I think it'll make a big difference. Twenty years ago, twenty-five years ago, that would not have been a, bit a debate. That would, there would have been no debate over what you just said. Mm-hmm. It seems to me there are two views of education today, and you're battling against one of them with yours. One view, I think, probably the majority of this audience's view, is that you go to school. Education, the purpose of elementary and secondary education, is to do what you said: learn a little bit about science, a little geography, a little math, a little English, a little literature, a little history. Um, that's that's a view of education. Uh, there's this other view, though, uh, Tom, isn't there, that is really about propagandizing uh, kids. I uh, was referencing to you off-air a book by Daniel Buck. He did a study of teachers' colleges and master's degrees programs, and he talked about what we find are students in graduate school passing around popsicle sticks to designate whose turn it is to talk while professors compel the graduate students to discuss life traumas. They read poems through the lenses of Marxism and critical race theory in preparation for students to do the same. Final projects are acrostic poems or ironic rap videos. These influential Marxist books that started coming along in the late 60s, early 70s, certainly Paulo Ferrer's would be the leading. It really is to view education more as to train students into not how to think, but what to think. That's where the battleground is now, right? Yeah, well, you mentioned Paulo Freire. Yeah. Paulo Freire was the number one textbook for the ethnic studies I told you about earlier. Yeah. And he was the proponent of this idea that the teacher should be the guide by the side and not, this, not the seer on the front. Yeah. Huh? The sage on the, the stage. Sage on the stage. Yeah. Um, and so... If you are a physics teacher and you're lecturing your students physics formulas, you are oppressing the students because they have to absorb what you're telling them rather than doing what they want to do. And um, and he is a self-confessed Marxist. Right. And, and I read his book, and what interested me was the appendix, which had pictures showing showing classes in the Soviet Union and how they do things in the Soviet Union yes. as the model. As a model, not a critique. Right. right. And, and, and so this is the formula for mediocrity. Yeah. So, so the, the governor of Arkansas said, you know, we're in a war of the normal against the crazy. We're also in the war, in the war of excellence versus mediocrity. Right. And excellence means treating everybody as an individual based on that individual's merits. Whereas mediocrity, which you get in critical race theory and, and all that stuff, is, is looks at what they call social justice. So justice is not, I went lawyers, justice is not social justice, is individual. Social justice to them means equal outcomes by ethnic groups or gender groups or whatever, rather than outcomes depending on the individual merit. If you devalue individual merit and your focus is on group outcomes, then you have mediocrity because you don't reward diligence, you don't reward intelligence, creativity, and so on. And, and, and that's the big war in education right now. Such interesting that you use, so interesting that you use that word mediocrity. There's really probably two 
famous national education reports that are talked about. One was um, out of Columbia's Teachers College way far back, even before World War II, Why Johnny Can't Read. But the other one was A Nation at Risk in 1983. And it opened up with this notion that our nation is facing, their phrase, a rising tide of mediocrity. But then they said this next thing that's so interesting, which is what put me in mind, what it put me in mind of when you mentioned Paulo Ferrer's model of the Soviet Union. Said if a foreign nation invaded us, wanting to destroy us, it could do no better than what it's doing in our education system. Mm -hmm. Similar to something that Lincoln said. Yes. Nobody will ever conquer us, but we could conquer ourselves. Yes. If um, death be our lot, it'll happen by suicide, the Lyceum Address of 1838, exactly, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Was like we will be its author and finisher, he said. He was, he was like 30-something years old. I think he was 28, I think. Yeah, I think he was 28 in that. So, yeah, so that's absolutely right. And uh, interestingly, I heard a, a Russian academic who came to this country. He said, nobody in Russia believes in Marxism anymore. So if you want to find Marxists, you have to come to American universities. That's right. That's right. Or the elementary and secondary school system in this country, um, which is, yeah, what this is all about. I mean, that's what was so interesting to me during the BLM riots of 2020. You remember they put out a curriculum and they had a BLM study guide, Black Lives Matter study guide. And one of the interesting things in there they had for until until too many people woke up to it was the dismantling of the traditional nuclear family. You remember this. And I thought, oh, boy, you have an organization that is founded by two quote-unquote trained Marxists, and we are now asking that part of our education system get rid of the nuclear family. I recognize that from Chapter 2 of the Communist Manifesto. That's exactly what Karl Marx says you have to start with. You have to start with getting rid of the nuclear family. That's what is at war with us right now, Let me tell you some things they were teaching in Tucson when I was fighting them. uh, This was also part of Raza's studies. They would have a a piece of paper they'd draw a line down the middle, on the left side were the qualities of people of color, and on the yeah. right side were qualities of whiteness. Yeah. And the qualities of whiteness were all negative. White people interrupt too much and stuff like that. Of course. So, so there was that stereotyping has come back. It's, uh, uh, I've argued elsewhere that the, the process of critical race theory is a movement back to primitive life. Yeah. Because in primitive life, evolution rewards tribes for sure. being trusting only themselves and fighting everybody else. That's right. But as civilization develops, we learn not to look at tribe, but to look at individuals and judge people as individuals. What do you know? What can you do? What is your character? What is your ability to appreciate beauty? Not what race you were born to, which in my philosophy is absolutely irrelevant to anything. I had thought we put it to bed in Nuremberg. Evidently, we haven't. <laughs> no. We'll pick up on more of this when we come back. Tom Horn and I will be right back. 602 508 Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Tom Horn, the superintendent of public instruction, is my guest. He's taking calls, 602-508-0960. want to get back to CRT with you in a minute, Tom. But first, let's uh, go to Susie, who's calling from Scottsdale. Susie, you're on with our superintendent. Hi there. Yes, I just turned on the radio and uh, love what I'm hearing from you. Um, I was just kind of curious, um, you know, David Schweiker was just on uh, pretty impressed and happy with his uh, daughter going to basis. I'm calling because I had switched our our, our child from um, basis, who, who was getting A's throughout her career there, wanted to have a regular high school uh, environment, went to the Desert Mountain High School in Scottsdale, and just started failing. 
started getting her first D's and F's, and I didn't understand. And she and, and uh, you know she takes notes like crazy. Bottom line, it came down to this: the teachers didn't teach; they wouldn't help. Um, I called the district. The district said they don't lecture math. The kids are supposed to figure it out for themselves. I called the Arizona Department of Education. They said the same thing. Well, this was, uh, and, must and have been before I took to, office. Yeah. <laughs> and um, they said they, they claimed that their uh, curriculum was rigorous, and, and I realized they had a text and they had a workbook that didn't correlate. They weren't the same. Um, they weren't created together. They're completely separate. Um, the, you know, it was just jumbled. You know, they would assign questions that had, uh, they assigned question number 15, but the information for question 15 would be, you know, listed under uh, question 10. It was just so infuriating. And I just broke my heart because my daughter loves math. And when she would um, talk to the other students, everybody was lost. I don't understand how the schools, you know, how, how do they how do they feel like they're doing their job when the kids are lost and they just seem quite happy about it good question i don't thank, really think they care thank you so, well superintendent well, horn you obviously had a terrible experience and that's why we have school choice so you do have choices and and that's why i fight for it because you know the last election was a big issue between my opponent and me and um i i I defeated an incumbent in general election for the first time in over 50 years. The last time that it happened was in 1966, mm-hmm. uh, in a in a year when um, the four people above me got beat. It was a, a Democratic sweep, uh, defeating an, an incumbent who was a woman for su- superintendent of schools, and who's actually a nice person. Everybody likes her. I think the public agreed with the points I was making about focusing on academics rather than uh, focusing on social-emotional learning, stuff like that, um, and about choice. Um, and I, so I think that that result of that election showed that these are ideas that the public is very enthusiastic about. If you do have a ongoing issue where you are looking at a school right now in our public system and you take a class like Susie was describing where the math book is not matching with the study guide, and it's just, uh, shall we say, what's the word I want? Cattywampus, an old word from the Midwest. Um, you, the, the, sc- the school board should be doing something about this, right? The school board should be running the curriculum, and if the school board's not doing that, they're not doing their job. That's really the first most important job of the school board, the curriculum work, isn't it? Yeah, I was very active in that when yeah. I was on the school yeah. board, and we did very well. I mean, my four kids went to the school, the Paradise Valley School District, kindergarten through 12th grade, and they ended up doing very well. One went to Harvard, went went to Columbia, U of A, and NAU, and uh, one of them's a surgeon, and so on. That did very well. Uh, uh, Public schools can be excellent. We should not be condemning public schools in general. Um, uh, But there can be cases where they're not, and, and that's why you have choices. You know, you, you, we say you, you could talk to the teacher, talk to the principal, talk to the superintendent, and talk to the school board members. And if, the, if that doesn't work, then you need to consider the fact that you do have choices. Or that you have to run for school board. It is an interesting irony that you can have a student getting A's and basis, which is known for its back-breaking, or I should say known for its ardent emphasis on things like math, who then transfers into a public school where she can't 
or she can't achieve. That that is that is the opposite direction we should be going. Yeah, I would guess she was bored probably, and that may be why she was not doing well. Or, yeah, or that they're not teaching math the way yeah. you should be teaching yeah, math. Right. Well, well, we're working hard on that. Uh, um, I mentioned earlier our slogan is we're a service organization dedicated to higher academic outcomes and empower parents. Uh, as a service organization, we have improvement teams that have been to many, many schools, and they're teaching just some of the things we're talking about. Um, you mentioned individualized instruction. The person who's the head of our school improvement is is uh, Michelle Udall, who you oh, yes, probably sure. know. Let me pick up on that when we come back. Okay. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Superintendent of Public Instruction Tom Horn is our guest. Uh, an extended interview because there is so much in this issue of education. It's really everything. Um, Tom, we were talking earlier about critical race theory, sometimes known as CRT, and there is this amazing denial that it even exists. I remember when people were waking up to it just a little bit, all the TV shows, all the talking heads were saying, nah, this is just, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a legal theory. It's in your law schools. Yes. Uh, anyway, uh, you were early on. You were on to this early on. Go ahead, sir. Well, I d- already described that it was being taught in, at, uh, in Tucson, which is the second largest district in our state now. And, and um, I, the National Education Association, which is the National Teachers Association, circulated a statement for teachers to sign that said that if the states tried to restrict their teaching of critical race theory, uh, they would defy the law. Uh, I have a list of 50 Arizona teachers who signed that, and and I have what districts they're in. It's there's 15 districts, including all our state's largest districts, mm-hmm. um, and it's a pretty radical thing for someone who's supposed to be a role model to young kids, saying they'll defy the law. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't do that unless they really believe passionately. That's right. These are passionate believers in critical race theory, and my view is, teachers are paid by the taxpayers to teach academics for the kids. Yep. And if a teacher abuses that situation and uses the captive audience to push their own personal ideology, that's unprofessional and they should be disciplined. Let's talk about teacher pay for a second. I've long been a proponent of merit pay. Again, something the unions oppose. What's your analysis on the issue yeah, of teacher pay? Yeah, I agree pay? with that. But in general, we really do have to pay more. Yeah. Um, the, there, no school can be better than the quality of the teacher in the classroom. That's right. Surrounding states all pay more. We lose good teachers there. We can't keep doing that. This year in the legislature, there was a legislator named Matt Gress. Yeah, sure. Who was a Republican legislator. Who We had a big surplus last year, which we're not, unfortunately we're not going to have this year. And because it was a large surplus, he had a proposal to give every teacher a $10,000 range yeah. raise. That would have put us in the top 10 states in the country in starting salaries. To my unbelievable shock... The teachers' union opposed it. Yeah. The Democrats, the legislature opposed it. The governor opposed it. Why? Because it came from a Republican. That's right. We've got to get away from these kind of partisan stupidities. This should be a bipartisan effort. We've got to raise the amount that we're paying our teachers. Yeah, it, you know, it is an ironic thing that they, they, they look uh, through this through such a partisan lens. I'm a big Matt Grace fan. I think I had him on about a week ago on, a, on another issue, the homeless issue. He's my legislator. He's mine too. Yeah. So uh, we, 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 we are well represented by Matt. Yeah. But, you know, the state senator who sits above uh, him in that district took out one of the great uh, educational 
uh, one of the great educational senators, she being a Democrat teacher herself, she was against the increase of money to education, and she won only because, with the support of the teachers' union, she was a Democrat. Took out a Republican who was putting more money into the education system. Well, the the Matt's Matt's proposal was in this last session. Yeah, right. So, uh, you know, I think the constituents need to learn. Yeah. That, that she opposed a raise for That's the right. teachers. I think that would shock people. Yeah, no, I think so, too. It, it's got to be a big issue because we do hear teacher pay, teacher pay, teacher pay, and I'm glad to hear you th- say it. I agree with you. Uh, good teachers should be paid more, yes. uh, for sure, uh, and I do believe in serious education reform on these things. Uh, Tom, 1619, it is an element of critical race theory. Some people think it isn't. I believe it is because it does, again, put all education uh, through the uh, lens of, through the view of race, and not just race, but with a with an with a with an angle that is ideologically aimed along the lines of an anti-Western philosophy. Would you say a word or two about sixteen nineteen? Uh, well, I sure will. Um, it's it's absolutely insane. It's used extensively as a textbook for critical race theory. The Baltz theory adopted yep. the sixteen nineteen yep. project. Yep other districts as well. Um, and I can give you five good examples. I'll give you one, and, and then I don't know you want to spend t- time on other things. In the 1619 Project, they teach that uh, the Declaration of Independence, that, de- that, that the Revolutionary War was not fought for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the way we say in the Declaration of Independence. It was fought to protect Southern slave owners from anticipated interference by England in slavery. Mm-hmm. Well, a group of professors who specialized in that period wrote to the New York Times, which published this mm-hmm. thing, and said, there's not one scrap of paper from the time that supports that. Most of them liberals, like Sean Willens and yeah, people like that. Right, right. but yeah. they're honest. Right. And um, and the, the person who was the main editor of... of Nicole the, Jones, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, she said, "Well, they're w- white historians." Yeah, like dismissing them because of right. their race. That's right. So this is the primitive way of dividing people by race. And just, if you're not of your my race, I dismiss anything you said because of your race, which is completely insane and irrational. But but it's the primitive mind really at work. One of the saddest things about Nicole Hannah Jones, the founder of the 1619 Project, one of the saddest things that is represented by Nicole Hannah Jones, she tells the story in one of her essays that her dad, who was a Vietnam War vet, flew the American flag in their front yard every day, took exquisite care of it with the rising and the lowering and the keeping of it if it got tattered, the replacing of it. She tells the story that one day she comes home from school and tells her dad that that flag needs to come down because it doesn't represent us. He says, where did you learn that? He said, I learned it in school. And that, to me, tells the whole story of the problem. Here you have an African-American war veteran from Vietnam who would have grown up in a literally more racist America who was proud to fly the flag. Patriotic. Only to ha- yes, of course, only to have his daughter in a far less racially uh, segregated or racially divisive country instruct her dad that he's doing the wrong That's thing. That's what we call reverse evolution. Exactly. Um, we went from the paramecia to Einstein. Yes, sir. Now we're heading back to be paramecia. Yes. That's, and that which was kind of part of your point earlier, too. And, you know, I suppose when you take that and you combine it with my most important statistic from NAEP, National Assessment of Education Progress, 
that 50% of our high school seniors score below basic in American history, which is to say they get an F in American history, you have 50% of our 17 and 18-year-olds put into a country where they, we can talk about it, but they are made aliens to their own country, and we wonder we wonder where this rock comes from. It comes from that, doesn't it? Yeah, they don't know what history, what, what century the Civil War was fought. Right. If you ask them who George Washington is, they think it's a rock group. Right. Uh, we have a lot of work to do. There. We have a lot of work to do. Yeah. I'm glad you're at the head of it, sir. Thank you. We had a first caller for you. Said you're the only one in our uh, in our in our state leadership who can do something about this. Thank God you are, and I want to thank you for being here for an extended period today. Thank you, sir. Seth. It's a great discussion, and anytime you want me back, I'm available even on short notice. Sounds good to me. Thank you. I'll be back with a concluding thought. Folks, you've uh, heard me talking about why Refi. They're one of our great uh, sponsors of this show, and. Um, you can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return with Y-Refi. It's an investment that no matter what the stock market does or the Federal Reserve does, uh, it won't matter because they're not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. It's an investment where you can turn your income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like. There are absolutely no fees in this secure, collateralized portfolio. And there's no reduction or attack on principal if you ever need your money back at any time. And you'll get your monthly statement with no surprises. They're based on Scottsdale Road in the 101. They encourage you to stop by and say hello and visit. Uh, you won't get a sales pitch. No one will ask you to sign a thing. They just like talking about what it is that they do and leave the sales pitching up to me. Or check them out online at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-YREFI-24. That's 888-YREFI-24. Young David. We did not talk on air much today. I am sorry I gave you short shrift. We had a lot of guests. We it's had all a right. lot of guests. And, and we have more coming up. Yes, and more coming up. And you worked well with my confusing and scheduling of them. Short shrift, that's a good word. You know where short it comes from? Shrift. shrift. No, I do not. You ever heard the phrase Shrove Tuesday? Yes, yes. I'm the son of a minister, so yes. Shrove yes. is the where shrift comes from. It's about confession. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Makes we, sense. We gave you short confession. Is there anything you would like to confess today? To confess? Yeah, including what political pin you may have on. <laughs> oh, I, I confess. I'm for Nixon Lodge in 1960. Nixon Lodge in 1960. Henry Cabot Lodge, right? Yes, Henry Cabot Lodge. I watched that documentary. It's a 10-minute thing on Richard Nixon that you sent me. I thought it was very good. Yeah, it it is good. And it was about basically how Nixon was the first or early on to the issue of the deep state. Mm -hmm. It's about a 10-minute thing put out by the Manhattan Institute with Christopher Rufo. What was so interesting about it, David, is this. I went to it on YouTube, which is where you can get it, and Nixon on the deep state, is that what it's called? It's something? called Nixon Forever. Nixon Forever. And I posted it on my Twitter if good. anybody listening wants to watch it also. Good, and your Twitter handle is underscore David. David underscore Doll. Yep. Yeah, D-O-L-L. What was interesting to me is he must have scratched a nerve because right next to it on YouTube is a 43-minute response to Christopher Rufo. Oh, I didn't see that. It takes them 43 minutes to try and undo 10 minutes, and they fail. Wow. Yeah. Did you watch that? No, of course oh. not. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a waste of time. Uh, thank you. Yes, we do have another guest, a great one, John Shattuck. We'll be right back. 
Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.